Welcome to Mission to Grow, the small business guide to cash, compliance, and the war for talent. I'm your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we'll bring you experts in accounting, finance, human resources, benefits, employment law, and more. You'll learn ways to access capital through creative financing and tax strategies, tactical information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, and people strategies you need to win the war for talent. Mission to Grow is sponsored by Assure. Assure helps more than 100,000 businesses get access to capital, stay compliant, and develop the talent they need to grow. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy. Welcome to Mission to Grow. Uh, I've got a great guest today to unpack this topic. This is a topic that is so easy to underestimate because we think onboarding is all about bringing on the, the, the new talent that is going to help us grow our business. But there's a lot of easy things that can, that can trip us up from a legal or from a com- compliance standpoint. Great guest to unpack all that today. Uh, my guest has extensive experience defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. His practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor, and he regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Please welcome back to the show, Brian Schinker, principal at Jax Lewis. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, Mike. Okay, so uh, uh, right from the jump, this is an easy one to us underestimate. If people watching today that are trying to grow their business had to remember only one thing, what's the most important thing they need to understand about onboarding? Yep, I think it would really be that you know onboarding is mu- about much more than just bringing on great talent. That a lot of the uh, legal pitfalls that can occur with employees and you know during the employment. Uh, period and on termination are very similar uh, to issues that can trip up employers in the hiring, recruiting, you know, and onboarding stages. So we we need to recall, remember that you know the uh, EEO laws, you know, about discrimination, you know, and, and other such laws apply with equal force uh, in the uh, applicant stage before these individuals are ever employed by your company. Yeah, and, and so so we'll get to some of those details, but I think that's a good way to look at it is that there's two sides to this coin, right? There's the, what can I do to attract and bring on the most productive, talented employees possible? Um, at the same time, doing so in a way that is compliant and doesn't create a bunch of unintended consequences, which is one of the areas we're going to explore, especially uh, with the, I'd say, the evolution of laws around trans- pay transparency and how that may impact uh, your current workforce, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and yeah, a lot of these issues, you know, what what may be best practices for reducing liability are often, you know, very much uh, the same in terms of promoting, you know, good employee morale and getting that top talent. So they really go hand in hand. So something if uh, nobody's probably watching or listening today, if they're not interested in the topic of onboarding, but just in case you want to know there's a correlation you know, we talk an awful lot about our uh, small business HR benchmark report. Uh, uh, we're in the process of putting the 2024 report together now. But we asked a couple of questions. Uh, so over 2,000 small businesses, we asked uh, a bunch of HR questions. And the last question was, hey, what best describes you last year? Was it a fast growth year, a growth flat, or did you have a down year? And two questions I just want to really highlight. Number one, do you have a first day checklist for new employees? Something just so simple 
is a new hire checklist, right? This isn't strategic. This doesn't require all kinds of skill. 85% of fast growth companies have a first day checklist. Companies who had a down year, no coincidence, 60%. A 25% spread for those companies, the fast growth to the shrinking companies, just by simply having a checklist. The second stat I want to share, do new hires go through a formal orientation to learn the company's mission, vision, values? The fast growth firms, 82%. Shrinking firms, 54%. So we're not talking about like really complex legal schemes here, right? We're talking about the basics. Do you have a first day checklist? Do you talk about your mission, vision, values? And clearly the fast growth companies do and shrinking companies don't, not nearly as much. So I, I just want to set the stage about how important this topic really is. So uh, let me kind of give it to you, Brian. What, 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 are, what do you think the big topics, what are the big components of onboarding that we should be, should be unpacking today? Yeah, so look, I, I think some of the uh, most important things are, you know, look, we say this a lot, but consistency, right? That, uh, you know, we're treating all applicants in a similar way, right? We're not, uh, you know, inquiring about certain things or doing certain uh, you know, inquiries or tests of some candidates versus, you know, others, right? So I, I think that's, that's a big thing. And, and you know, like, give an example of what you mean by that. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, look, if, if we have, uh, you know, one candidate who, you know, we may ask to, you know, maybe, you know, test them out and perform some of the, uh, the job duties, like, you know, lifting something or, or whatever they might be, but, you know, we're not asking other candidates to do that. Um, you know, some of that could lead to a disparate treatment type of claim where someone, you know, the person who was subject to that additional testing, you know, maybe they have a disability and, you know, the interviewer perceived them as having a disability based on, you know, some visual cues. And so, you know, that interviewer thought, hey, I should test this individual to make sure they can, you know, pick up up to 40 pounds. But then, you know, someone who didn't present with any, you know, obvious, uh, uh, you know, impairment like that didn't, you know, have to go forward with that same test. So, you know, it's important to treat people similarly and, and not have, you know, different uh, testing or different you know, procedures for different people. Because, again, even, you know, not, you know, that was obviously a blatant example I provided, but there can be much more subtle ones where, you know, look, you know, the company doesn't see any potential discrimination in that. But, you know, an, an applicant might might think uh, that they're being treated a little differently. So we want to you know make sure you know that we're taking consistent approaches across you know, all candidates. Yeah, and I've used this example. You and I have talked before. Like, it, I can see somebody like my dad, who was an entrepreneur. You know, retired you know long long ago. I can see you know a, a, a someone with maybe a, a, what looks to be a physical handicap. Maybe dare I say. Uh, a, a, a woman comes in and he would just think he's being chivalrous and being kind because he wouldn't want to set someone up to fail. It's not because he's, you know, some, you know, terribly discriminating human being. Uh, but like you said, if, if you don't give that same, okay, there's a 40 pound lift test. If you only give it to certain people, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of begging for it. Right. I mean, cause the, it, if, if all the people, if 90% of the people walk in are just big, strong, hulking guys, um, it's easy to highly think, okay, they can lift 40 pounds, but 
just give everybody the same 40 pound test, right? Yeah, exactly. And look, I think they're, you know, for employers to just understand, right, what topics are off limits and what topics are permissible, uh, both, you know, to address in application, you know, questionnaires or interviews, right? So there's, there's a lot of room there to get tripped up, especially, you know, when applicants, you know, uh, might disclose something that we know we shouldn't get into, but then, you know, that you're thrown off because they've, they've brought up some, you know, topic that you're not supposed to get into. And then, you know, what do you do? So, right. you know, there are a lot of things that can come up that, uh, you know, again, you talked about having a checklist, right? If, if an employer doesn't know from A to Z, you know, what they're hiring, recruiting, onboarding, you know, interviewing uh, procedures are, it's very easy to number one, be inconsistent with how you treat people. And number two, get tripped up when something out of the ordinary comes up and, you know, not really being prepared for, you know, how, how to properly deal with those issues. Yeah. Right. All right. What, what else should we be thinking about today? Sure. So I, I look, I, I think another thing to remember here is, you know, we talk so much about how, you know, legal compliance goes hand in hand with culture, right? That, you yeah. know, you're going to have better employee morale when you're doing things the right way. I think the same thing goes with applicants. And I think one thing employers don't consider is even those applicants that you reject and don't hire, they're going to go out and talk about your company. And if your hiring process is just all over the place and you're they're being asked improper questions, look, maybe that doesn't rise to uh, the level of a legal claim, but those people will speak. And then, you know, you are going to have issues, uh, you know, with your company's, uh, you know, reputation where, oh, you know, people talk. And so I think, you know, it's a very easy way to have positive reputation, right? That even people you aren't hiring, you're treating them the right way with respect, dignity, that, you know, that'll be known within, you know, applicant pools. And certainly, it gets known, you know, which employers are doing the wrong thing. So I, I think, you know, very important, um, you know, topic today and, you know, really to be compliant in this hiring process, which I think is often overlooked by, by companies. Yep. Uh, Brian, I mean, most everybody, unless you've been under a rock for the last, you know, since 1960, or even 64, uh, you, you know, you know, you can't, you got to pay everybody the same for the same work. You can't discriminate based on, you know, age, gender, race, religion. Uh, uh, we, we get all the title seven stuff, even if you can't, you know, say it verbatim, everybody gets what you can't discriminate against. What are some of the common mistakes that employers are making? Cause there's a lot of new law that I think most people, it, it doesn't reach the headlines of the wall street journal. It's not in the evening news. There's a lot of law around applicants job postings and such that a lot of people just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So look, I, I think there are a lot of new laws and, and look, some of these aren't necessarily on the federal level. They're going to be on the state or local level. Uh, but certain things like, uh, you know, pay transparency and, you know, salary, uh, you know, uh, re, you know, information. So, you know, there's a lot of laws out there, uh, about, you know, job postings needing to have, you know, salary ranges, right? Um, you know, and so that's, that's something that if, if companies in a jurisdiction, they need to make sure their job postings are compliant. Yeah. Uh, you know, similarly, on that same topic of salary, right, there's, you know, the, the um, 
there's you know these issues where you're not you know laws that prohibit you from asking about a past salary uh, to an applicant, right? You can't ask uh, what they made at their prior job in certain jurisdictions, and yep. so again, right? That you know means you're, you're going to have to figure out what you should be paying people, and you know that that's a general you know best practice too. Um, you know, there are also ban the box issues, right? Ban the box meaning many jurisdictions uh, have laws that dictate when in the hiring process you can ask an applicant about their criminal background, right? Yeah. Many of these laws say you can't ask about that until you know after a conditional offer of employment's been made, or at least you know after you know non-criminal uh, conviction uh, matters have been uh, considered by the employer. Um, and so those are some of the big, you know, the newer uh, topics, you know, issues that we're seeing in the hiring process. But look, the, the same, you know, uh, things that were issues 20 years ago uh, with respect to, um, you know, disparate treatment, discrimination claims and disparate impact discrimination claims. They're, they're still at play today. Right. Where you, you're not going to treat people differently because of uh, protected characteristics like sex. Uh, disability, religion, race, uh, to name a few. And look, I think in the hiring process, uh, disparate impact uh, type claims have the potential, right? I'll so- that a little bit. You and I have done shows where we've uh, gone deeper on this topic, but for those who haven't seen that that content before, and I invite everyone to go back if you haven't, what, clarify the difference Right. Disparate impact versus disparate treatment. Right. So disparate treatment is the typical type of discrimination claim uh, that most people think of where it's uh, a decision here. Today, we'll talk hiring decisions based on a prohibited prohibited factor. For instance, you know, the employee says you didn't hire me because I'm a female or, you know, you asked inappropriate questions about my pregnancy and my future uh, plans for child care. Right. Yeah. Those are disparate treatment. It's explicitly about a protected characteristic. Yeah. Disparate impact is more subtle, right? It is a facially neutral policy, practice, or test that disparately, right, disproportionately impacts a protected uh, group, right? So, for instance, uh, a policy of hiring only people over 5'10, right, for a certain job, right? In practice, right, I mean, that by itself doesn't say anything about sex, right? But in practice, that's going to exclude many more women than men. So that might have a disparate impact. Or, you know, some. Let's let's stick on that one. So let's say I'm hiring for a warehouse worker and they need to be able to pick items off of a shelf, uh, the second rack of a shelf that is uh, at least six feet high. And so I create this rule that says, hey, hey you got to be at least 5'8", and has the disparate impact of, of, of excluding a disproportionate number of women from the job. How, how would I approach that as an employer? Because maybe I legitimately need tall folks. That I, don't, I don't care if they're, I, I didn't specify it had to be a man or, or a woman. I didn't think I'm discriminating. I need, I need people who can reach. Yeah. What do I do in that situation? Yeah. So excellent question. And look, there may often be job requirements that need to be satisfied, right? Someone needs to be able to do them. But that doesn't mean that we need to impose that, you know, five foot 10 requirement, right? Maybe 
part of the uh, you know interview process is testing them to see if they can you know reach that shelf and pick that up. And then right yeah. now you're not imposing some restriction mm-hmm. on you know who can work this job, but now it is completely uh, based on the job duties. Right now you're yeah. seeing who can perform these job duties, and if there's a woman under five ten who you know, can reach that, excellent. Or a man under five, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's more about focusing on the job duties. And and again, that's a good, really good point to take <clears throat> from, from this, right? That more or less everything that we're going to be doing in the hiring process should always, it should always be relating back to the job duties, right? And whether this person can perform those job duties. It is so easy to get swayed, you know, to get sidetracked from that issue. But when we're hiring, that's really what we're looking for. You know, yeah. is this person able to do the job and do we expect that they'll do it well? And so right. let, let, let me recap and see if I got the difference between in, in that use case between disparate treatment and dr- disparate impact. So disparate treatment would be, okay, it's a warehouse job. They got to be able to reach stuff off of tall shelves. I'm only going to hire men because men are on average taller than women. That's disparate treatment. I'm treating classes of people different. Disparate impact would say, oh, I don't, gender doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't care. Anybody over 5'10". That, but that has the disparate impact that I'm discriminating against. What it doesn't account for, and I'm just realizing how ridiculous my, my example is, because maybe you have really long arms or something. I don't know. But, and, I'm, and I'm assuming OSHA might take some issues of people having to reach up to six-foot shelves. So. Right. So maybe, maybe we need who's just listening, <laughs> who's listening today, uh, it, it raised that example. Uh, but, but do I have that right? That's the difference between disparate treatment and impact? Yes, absolutely. And, and another place we see disparate impact a lot, you know, come up a lot in the hiring practice is, you know, so for some jobs, there'll, there'll be some evaluation or test and the yeah. results of those tests, right? It's, you know, you know, people of a certain race are, you know, are failing that test at, much higher rates than, you know, Caucasian people are right. And so it's important if you're, if a company is using tests that every once in a while, analyze the results, make sure that you're not inadvertently excluding certain categories of people, you know, from your tests, it it might need to be revised if it's having that impact. It's that disparate impact that I think really trips people up. And I I think the guidance we, we consistently give is, don't base it on some, tr- don't base it on a feature or a trait that the candidate has. You got to be over 5'10. Base it on the job description, the job requirement. Hey, this job requires you to lift things off of tall shelves. Can you do that? Right? That That's all you need. And, and, you, and you accomplish the goal you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. One other thing before we, we leave, uh, uh, you know, the, the topic of, of candidates and applicants. We've spent some time before in this show talking about social media, but th- this just continues to, to be a, a growing issue. What should employers be thinking about as it relates to social media? I mean, can you cyberstalk? Can you not cyberstalk? If you do cyberstalk, can you use that information in the interview? How, how should employers be thinking about the use of social media when screening applicants? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, right? You know, now that we have social media at our fingertips, there's so much information about applicants out there 
that an employer can find. Um, you know, and look, there are many legitimate reasons to to you know go on social media to you know uh, look into candidates, right? Verify you could verify statements they've made on their resume or application, um, learn more about their past you know employers and experience, um, you know, and or discover you know personal details that call the applicant's judgment into question, right? Use of discriminatory language or um, you know, egregiously negative comments about, you know, their prior employer, right? Those could be things that that could be red flags. But what we have to balance it out with is this general, general rule of thumb that says that basically anything the employer looks at in the hiring process, they are going to be presumed to have relied on that information in making their hiring decisions. And so the problem with social media then is that it creates a lot of risks because social media gives us a lot of information about employees, including their protective characteristics, right? Um, yeah. you know, you, a Google search on someone might reveal their religion or a disability or their sexual orientation. Um, you know, it, it could disclose a whole lot of things that shouldn't be considered in the hiring process. Uh, and then we have the problem of establishing that, you know, the company has relied on uh, proper, uh, you know, information and not the impermissible uh, things related to protected categories and making its uh, decisions. Um, yep. So, you know, look, I, I think there are a number of best practices, tips I'd give to employers when it comes to social media. Uh, number one, the plant plan, right? Decide which websites or which social media sites you're going to allow a hiring manager to look into, right? That, you know, maybe it's Facebook, maybe it's Facebook and Twitter, you know, but, but you know, consider which sites that, that you'll, you'll permit so that it's, again, what I said at the very beginning, you're going to be doing a consistent search for each applicant. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing I would recommend is that the person who's making the hiring decision should not be the one who is doing the social media search, right? Because this way, it's almost as if we're creating uh, a wall, right? Where the person who looks at the social media, right, they might find some you know, stuff about protected category, uh, categories, but that will not be conveyed to the person making the hiring decisions. Only... Uh, you know, the non-protected stuff that they find w would be conveyed. So I think I'm going to interject because, I mean, this sounds a little bit like a legalistic thing for an HR department of a big company. The average small employer, I mean, I, I own a landscaping company. I've got three crews and 15 employees. I'm going to check out this guy's Facebook account and whatever else Google tells me. I don't have an HR department. I don't have somebody else that's to offload that task to what so knowing that folks in the real world they're gonna check out the candidates online what's the best thing that they can do to deal with it and, and, and handle it properly yeah I, I so i think another thing that could be done is to put it off till later in the hiring process right because there are a lot of candidates that you're not going to hire and you don't need to search their social media to determine you're not going to hire them. But if early on in the process, you look at the social media for everyone 
then you're potentially tainting what would otherwise be very legitimate uh, denials of employment by potentially pulling, you know, information that could have, you know, protected category, category uh, characteristics reference. So, you know, perhaps it's only done, you know, at, you know, when you're considering offering uh, the job to, you know, the one individual or, you know, post offer. So, right. For smaller companies, it might not be something you search for every single person, maybe only when you get farther in, yeah. in the hiring process. Right. That makes sense. And, and then going back to, I think the very first word you said, I wrote down is consistency. So if, if I can't resist my voyeuristic tendencies and, and I'm doing a search on all kinds of people before I interview them, um, and maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, but let's just be real. People are going to do it. As long as you are ridiculously consistent and you, in every single candidate that you uh, engage with, you engage based on the same criteria. When you interview them, you have the same questions, the same application. The, the, is everything is consistent, and you've, the knowledge isn't gonna, what's going to get you in trouble. It's the treatment and the behaviors and the inconsistency of behaviors that will get you in trouble. Am I thinking about that right? Exactly, and you know, then it comes to you know documenting, right? So when we document, you know, why you know we made an offer to one person versus the other, right? You know, just jot some notes that are job related because again. It all goes back to, you know, focusing on job related information. So, you know, we don't want to search, search out those, you know, protected char characteristics, you know, maybe, you know, LinkedIn is the place to start, you know, for some businesses, right? You're, right. you're very much less likely to, you know, find that, you know, th those other things there, uh, like you would on, you know, say Facebook or, you know, Instagram or, or Twitter, um, but, you know, and so I think that's it. But, you know, look, employers need to understand that if you're going to go on social media, you might come across things that you should not be basing your decision on. Uh, and then, you know, you really need to make sure that, you know, your documentation supports your decision based on, you know, uh, you know, normal job related things and not not the stuff that, you know, their their sexual yeah. orientation or you know, the, the fact, you know, and, you know uh, and then maybe the last thing I would add on consistency would be the way you take notes, right? It's reasonable to interview someone and take and take notes. But if all your notes, if you don't say, oh, excellent experience of doing X, Y, Z, that correlates to the current job. But the only notes you really capture are maybe it has to do with hairstyles or, uh, uh, you know, things you saw on social media or th things that could indicate a perception of a protected class and the judge says, okay, show me your notes, Pro prove that you're not discriminating. And the only notes you have is, okay, this person wore this piece of this type of a garment, which clearly represents maybe a certain religious belief or right. I mean, so consistency, 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 not just your process, but all the way through, including your documentation of the hiring process. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. So, so past, we're past applicants. We're, we're interviewing. What, what, what are the, some of the places that folks get themselves in trouble during the actual interview process? Sure. Sure. So I, I think one of the things that uh, can trip employers up during the interview process is 
these self-disclosure issues, right? Where again, all we've talked about is trying to stay away from inquiring about or considering any protected you know, characteristics. But look, when you're having an interview and you know, sometimes an employee, like they, they don't necessarily know the law, right? And they might just spouse something out. So or, or do something, right? So here's an example, right? You have uh, an individual uh, interviewing for a driver position and they they go to sit down in a chair for the interview and, and you observe them, you know, physically struggle to get in and out of the chair, right? You know, how do you respond? Do you start, yeah. you know, asking them what's wrong? Like, are you having issues? Do you have a disability? You know, do you take a lot of, you know, uh, personal days off to, to deal with, uh, your, you know, no, you, you don't get in, into any of that. But what you can absolutely do is describe the job requirements and ask the applicant if they'll be able to uh, fulfill those essential uh, positions, right? Right. Um, you know, you're not going to ask, are you, oh, are you going to need an, an accommodation uh, because I see you're struggling with sitting? No, you know, we, we don't get into that. Um, so just because you observe or hear something during an interview doesn't mean you address it. In fact, you know, in that situation, you steer clear of that. Let me ask this, Brad, because I, I don't want to, I don't, don't want our example to get enter into the absurd here, but let's say there is a physical component to the job. You see a candidate come in and you're like, you can't unsee them maybe stumbling or appearing to struggle physically. So you, you're, you're well-trained HR uh, executive. And so you don't ask, you know, about their situation. You just ask the question, well, the job requires the ability to lift at least 40 pounds as many as 20 times a day, sometimes over a height of four, four feet. Is that something you can accomplish? And if they say yes, but you just, you just watch them. You don't believe they can. What, what can you and can't you do just for the, for your own decision-making process? Right. So there, there are a couple of things you could do, right? So you could ask them about what they've done in the past, you know, their, you know, their experiences at prior uh, employers, whether they had to, you know, fulfill similar duties. And then perhaps when you're checking references, you can ask that reference, Hey, you know, and again, we're not referencing any, you know, disability. We're saying, Hey, uh, did this, was this person able to, you know, pick up heavy objects, you know, when, when yeah. they work for you, because they, they mentioned that was a requirement. Yeah. Another way that employers can go. And again, we're talking about consistency. This would be applied to all candidates is you can test candidates, right? So, you know, again, you wouldn't just do this to the one person who you think, you know, might not be able to do it. You'd do it to all candidates. But, you know, as part of the interview, you can have a test where, you know, they have to, you know, pick something up and place it on a shelf uh, to test that ability. Right. Um, right. You know, so those, those are completely fine. And again, it's it's really just focusing on on the, uh, the job duty uh, itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are other things, right? Like pregnancy, you know, that's something that that comes up and I hear from clients time to time that, you know, an applicant, uh, you know, says that, you know, they're pregnant or they just had a baby. And then, you know, look, the, the natural response of a human being is to then discuss, oh, you know, how's it going? What do you do for child care? Think, but no, we want to steer clear of that, right? So the response how, is- How do you handle that? Because this, I feel like this is- uh me talking real world today. Uh, again, like if you're a big company, you got resources, you know, if you hire, you're, you're trying to hire the best person and they go out on maternity leave. Okay. You're, you're still thrilled because in a tough labor market, you got a really talented person. If you're a five person company and you hire someone, 
that three months later is going to go out. You know it's illegal. You can't discriminate based on it. And and you want to you want to do the right thing. It would also be really really hard on your business. What's the what's the human yeah. and legal way to handle that? Yeah, I mean, look. Unfortunately for employers, you've got to put that those thoughts aside and you know consider this person like any other applicant, right? I mean, you know, yes, that individual may need to take time off, but hey, the, the, the man who's 50 years old who you interviewed the day before, you might not know that he's got some disability that he might have to take time off for. So, right. uh, you know, right. again, that's just something that you know about now, but that doesn't mean, you know, anyone else would not have uh, need similar time off. But yeah, I mean, look, to comply with the law, you're really just going to switch gears. And look, it's not to say, you know, someone says they're pregnant and you just pretend you didn't hear it and go on. You can say, uh, you know, congratulations and then, you know, move on. But you don't want to inquire any further on that um, because, look, I've had clients who say, yeah, like I, I want to ask them what they're going to do for child care. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to work you know, overtime if, you know, or if they'll be able to get in on time. Well, there's an easy way to ask about that. Hey, this job requires you to start at 9 a.m. each day. Will you be able to get here? Excellent. Hey, you know, from time to time, there, there may be overtime. Are you uh, able to work overtime, you know, past the shift, you know, two days a week, right? So nope. you ask the directed questions at the job-related issues, you know, rather than getting into, you know, the pregnancy type issue, right? Yep. So there's a way to assess whether they can do the job uh, without, you know, getting into further follow-up questions about, you know, their, you know, condition. I, I feel even weird because I, I, I like, I don't want to press on this issue too hard. I don't want to like, I don't want to help people gain the system and discriminate against, you know, pregnant women. Um, but I, I think there are legitimate business reasons why. So how would you handle say, I'll give you two use cases. I'm a, I'm a marketing guy and I have this major event I have this big conference that's, that's in five months from now. It's going to require tons of work and it's going to require the who are the project leader that to be on site. If the person like I can physically see, you know, they're they're a couple months away, you know, they say they tell me they're pregnant. I don't ask any questions. I can tell that they're not probably going to be here when this critical event and that's the singular reason I'm, I'm hiring for. What what, what do you do? Yeah, so I get it. It's a difficult issue and, it, you know, it may present some you know burdens to the employer if they end up hiring that person and then, you know, provide an accommodation of, you know, time off for, um, you know, caring for the child. But, you know, in the end, that, that's what the law says we need to do. Yeah. Right? We can't yeah. consider the pregnancy um, as part of the, uh, the, the hiring process. And, yeah, I get it. And look, that's also why, you know, look, a, you know, more and more jurisdictions are starting to, you know, require employers to offer uh, sorts of, you know, pregnancy leave, you know, paternity and maternity leave. You know, we have that now um, in New York to, to bond with uh, uh, newborns. And, you know, it's a yeah. growing trend, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, what I would say to employers is that, you know, providing those accommodations to, um, you know, pregnant individuals or, you know, uh, you know, the spouse, you know, those are benefits, right? That, you know, look, 
you know, the more benefits you can offer, the more employees uh, typically will like working for your company. And so you know, I see that type of flexibility and willingness to accommodate, you know, paternal uh, or maternity leave is a positive, right? That, you know, again, it, it can be a burden for employers. It might mean you need to, you know, cross train some employees during that time uh, to assist with those duties. But look, just like, uh, you, you know, look, we're, we're that same employer, are, you know, would they then not hire anyone, you know, any young women because the chances they could become pregnant while they're working there? You know, obviously that would be discriminatory. So, right, and, and Brian, it, it, t tell me if this is the right way to ask ask the question because I'm, I'm trying to think. Ask the questions that have to do with the job, right? Not about the candidate, because because I think really good people that that family values, you know, non discriminatory folks would would never want to intentionally break the law and discriminate here. But is it, it probably is reasonable to say, hey. A core part of this job is over the next six months, the, the responsibilities are going to continue to increase, including being on site, probably working uh, 50, 60 hours a week during this big event. Is that something that you're going to be able to do? That's a reasonable question, right? As long as you're not in the context of pregnancy, it's what the question has everything to do with the job, performing the job. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what you want to ask. And look, the same way that someone who might be pregnant or might have a disability, right? They, they might not disclose that during an interview, right? They're not required to, and, you know, nor should you be asking. It's just sometimes, you know, right. a candidate, you know, brings it up and, hey, you know, now we, you know, have to deal with the fact they brought it up. But, right, I mean, generally you're not going to be asking about that. You're going to be asking about, right, their ability to handle this project and, you know, the specifics of that, that going. Sometimes I got to remind myself the answer is almost always the question – the application process, the interview process, it all has to do with the job requirements, right. not their qualifications, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there are some legal trends happening in this, in, in this area. Uh, ban the box is one. Uh, salary transparency is another. M maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the trends. I mean, yeah. these things ha tend to be state by state local municipality by municipality. So you can't, you can't punch list all of them. I know, but right. share with us, what are, what are the trends that we should be looking out for here? Right. So I think you mentioned ban the box. That's a big one. And these laws limit when an employer can permissibly ask about an individual's criminal history. Right. So in those jurisdictions, you know, gone are the days where, you know, they get the box from where you have a box on the you know, application, you know, have you been convicted of a crime, you know, a crime in the last, you know, X number of years? Yeah. That doesn't, you know, that should not go on um, applications in those jurisdictions. Um, you know, there are different laws here, you know, that, that regulate when in the hiring process an employer can ask. Uh, many of them, you know, some of them require a condition, you know, a conditional job offer first to be made. And then if they accept it, then you can do the criminal background check. And then if you're going to deny employment, you know, there's a process to go through, um, you know, for that. Um, but, you know, again, you know, talking, talking about interviews, you know, these things can come up even in, you know, a ban the box state, right? You know, let's say you're looking at someone's application and you see there's a three-year gap in their employment history. 
And, you know, during the uh, the screening call, you asked them you know, about the gap and they, the uh, applicant says, I was incarcerated for those three years. So what are you going to do? Right. You're going to steer the conversation back to a job related uh, you know, topic. And um, again, like I said, even if you're, this information is disclosed in these ban the box jurisdictions, you're going to wait until later in the process, likely after an offer has been made to uh, run that. Um, to ask about a criminal conviction or, you know, do a, a background check uh, that would involve, involve their criminal history. Um, another one you mentioned, sal salary history, right? So yeah. there are more and more jurisdictions uh, jumping on, on this, uh, you know, that uh, basically don't permit an employer at any stage of the hiring process to ask about an applicant's prior salary history. The idea behind that is, if women have been being paid less historically and you're going to ask everyone about their prior history, salary history, and you're going to base the new salary on that, then that's going to, you know, perpetuate the discrimination that, you know, women have faced. So, you know, the best practice here is if you're in a jurisdiction that has, uh, you know, salary uh, history restrictions, you know, look, you should have your own set framework for what each position, the range you're willing to pay each position. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, and that's not to say you can't ask the employee, the applicant anything, right? You can still ask the applicant, hey, what are you looking to make in this position? Which isn't that really the key question because you're asking them what they made before, you know, people might not be truthful, right? They can always, you know, like I imagine many will, will say they made more than they did anyway. So, you know, well, or they didn't and life circumstances changed. That was a season of my life that I had this thing. I was taking care of an elderly ill parent. And so I took this job that paid less, but was more flexible. And now I'm ready to get back at it. So their, right. their history might be a, a half of what their actual market potential is. Right. Exactly. So the, the, the big question is what are you looking for? And, as the employer, what am I willing to pay? And so you should come into the hiring process, right? The same when you're preparing the job post, right? The job description you know, should be updated and you should be looking at the job duties. But, you know, in addition to all of that, you should be thinking, what's the range I'm willing to pay for this position? And, you know, that's what the focus should be, not on what someone used to be making. You know, and I probably have another, another, uh, we'll do a show just on this topic again. I think we could probably talk about this five times. I think I'll call it a pre pandemic world. Uh, uh, even though unemployment was getting pretty low, uh, economy was good. Historically, you know, for most of our lives, there's been more jobs than there are job seekers. And so employers have typically had. I'd say the, the, the supply and demand competitive advantage um, and, the, and the tables have clearly turned. This isn't just a, a post-pandemic thing. There, there are more, uh, uh, and I, I think I said it wrong, that, that yeah. there aren't, yeah, right. So, so now there are more jobs than there are seekers. And, and so the employee, it's an employee's market, right? They, they have, have choices uh, in this area. So um, uh, I, 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 I think this is kind of a, kind of a self-correcting thing yeah. where, you know, employers are going to be incentivized. How can I possibly bring the best person out? It doesn't matter what they made. It, I'll, I'll pay what the market will bear. The yeah. biggest probably challenge I think folks are going to face is I had John that I brought on 
five years ago and I paid X and now the marketplace is paying Y, but I live in a state where I have to list it in my job posting. What do I do with John? It's not, it may not be, okay, I'm going to have to pay this to get somebody new. It's the pay gaps of your existing workforce. Can you give some counsel on that topic? Yeah. So, right. There are more and more jurisdictions, you know, certainly in New York City is one that are requiring on job postings to state the expected range of salary for that position. Yeah. Um, and that has both external and internal, uh, you know, uh, consequences, right? Externally, right. You want to get a good range there because you want to attract the right talent, right? If it's too low, if your range is too low, you're not attracting the right talent. If no. your range is, you know, too high, then, you know, you're paying way more than market value. And if your range is just too broad, right, it's on the low end, on, on the low side and on the high end, then you're really attracting too many people and too broad an applicant pool. Um, and so, right, those are the external issues, but right, ex internally, right, you have the salary compression issues where, you know, right. right. You, you hired, uh, you know, John, you know, five, 10 years ago at, you know, at a salary of X and, you know, that's been steadily increasing, but you're going to bring in someone new. And because of the dynamics of, you know, the job market now, you're going to pay them 10, 15,000 more than you're paying John. And if you have to put that in the, uh, you know, that range in, in a, in a salary quote, in a po job posting, that can cause issues. So it's, uh, it's important to consider those. And, and look, there are no easy answers other than the obvious answer of before you post a job, you need to consider these issues, right? Even if you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't require you to post uh, the, the salary, uh, it is something you should still be considering uh, because, of course, employees can always discuss this, right? You know, many employers try to, you know, come up with rules to bar employees from discussing their salary. You know, those are, you know, unlawful. They're allowed to discuss uh, their their salary and benefits and often do. And so, you know, having, again, right, consistency, the word of the day, right? Um, you you want to be consistent with how you pay people within the same positions. Um, yeah. And whether that means you, you have to increase some salaries because of, you know, the job market now, you know, it, that, that may be it, but, you know, it also to look at these issues ahead of time and not deal with them in a reactive way. That, that's the key, because a little planning here goes a long way. Um, you know, certainly, you know, there, as I said, because there's not one answer, uh, but you can certainly figure out those answers if you take the time to analyze your, your workforce a little bit. Yeah, great. Uh, maybe maybe we shift to documentation. You know, we, we, we hinted at this a couple of times, but but what should employers be thinking about? And I, and I don't want to I don't want this to be only legalistic. How do you stay out of, out of the orange job suit, so to speak, or get yourself sued? <laughs> What's, what, are, what are the best practices and documentation for finding it and bringing on the best talent, but also doing so in a compliant way? Yeah. So I, I think we always talk about it in all facets of the employment process and HR processes that you know, documentation is so key. And here, you know, it's about documenting the right things, right? So I think you even mentioned it before, right? We're, we're in an inter you know, maybe we're in an interview and someone discloses, you know, 
uh, a pregnancy or some issue, right? Are we going to jot down on their, uh, you know, on the resume or on our notes page pregnant? No, we're not going to do that because again, as I mentioned earlier, anything that we have notes on, any, any written thing that's part of this hiring process, it's going to be presumed that the employer relied to some extent on that information. Right. Uh, so, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, when we're talking about notes, right, this could be notes from, you know, telephone interviews or in-person interviews, um, you know, the notes that you take, right, they should be objective. And again, your considerations should be objective, right? You know, how the person answered the questions, their observable behavior, you know, not your conclusions about it, right? Like you can talk about how someone was, you know, when you got to a certain topic, they were, you know, fidgeting and, and yeah. sweating. Yeah. Right? You're it, not, it, it's, it's not, it's not, they, they're a shifty person. I don't trust them. It's when I asked this question, they seemed uncomfortable in their chair and kept on shifting. That's, right. a, that's observing a behavior, not right. making a, a, a conclusion, right? Exactly. Because when we make the conclusions, that's where there's danger of getting into, right. um, you know, areas that we shouldn't be addressing in hiring. Um, but, you know, again, I think we really want to, um, you know, make sure that, you know, we document the relevant information and not, you know, the irrelevant stuff. So, um, you know, for instance, if there is an older candidate, right, you know, sometimes look, there's coded messages, right? Like, you know, someone might know this candidate lacks energy or enthusiasm, right? But is that what's that really mean? How is that observed? Right. That's more of a conclusion that looks a bit like, you know, yeah. it could be discriminatory towards. Yeah. You, know, you just don't think older people have that that energy. What, what does that even mean? Right. So, right. you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the things that are written down are, 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 you know, are things that should be considered. And one thing I would really mention here, uh, and this is, you know, coming from my litigation perspective is limit the use of email about, you know, sensitive, uh, you know, personnel matters. And this goes to the hiring process, but also the disciplinary process, the yeah. uh, termination process is again, those types of email chains, there's a tendency for things to be put out there that maybe aren't even part of what we rely on for in the job decision, but someone yeah. makes once, you know, uh, you know, not, not great comment in an email chain and that's there forever. Right. right. Um, so I think, you know, to, to the extent you can avoid it, you know, have in-person discussions about these things so that, you know, if someone trips up and considers something they shouldn't, you can say, look, we shouldn't consider that, but it's not now in an email and it's going to be used against the company as if they you know, right. considered it. So I, I'm going further, going back upstream. Start with a great job description. When you understand the job description, now you can identify the specific skills and competencies to required to perform that, that job. <clears throat> now, in my applicant process, my interview process, in the documentation of said interview and applicant process, I'm really only documenting. I'm, I'm documenting as thorough as I can, but only those things as they relate back to the skills, the competencies, and the job description, yeah. and nothing more, right? Exactly. Yeah. Anything else on documentation they want to give? 
guidance on here? I think we got a couple more topics we want to hit yet. Yeah, I think that's good on documentation. I think we hit the uh, the main points. Just keep it to the relevant information and avoid documenting things yeah. that aren't relevant, that are not job related. Right. When we say relevant, we really mean job related. Yeah. And, and maybe I would have said this. All you have to do is watch a cable news show. And it doesn't matter which side uh, you're watching. One person's factual conversation is another person's dog whistle, right? And so you might think that you're saying something, you're, you might just think you're making a, a, an innocent observation. And it might not be the candidate who looked over and saw your notes. It could be someone in your office that's, like you said, maybe they saw the email discussion about this person. Maybe somebody else did see your notes in your documentation in and you thought you were documenting facts or behaviors, but to them, it's like, oh, that's that's what that really means, even if it didn't, right? right? So let's talk background checks in, in, in drug testing. This is this is evolving territory, right? Uh, marijuana is illegal at the federal level. Many states legalize, you know, the trend has obviously gone from legalization to, uh, from medically to not recreational. It's state by state. Um, yeah. You know, how, uh, I remember when I entered corporate America, drug testing was a very standard thing. It's it's not nearly as frequent anymore. How should how should employers be thinking about both background checks and drug tests? Yeah, and it's an excellent question. And look, I, I think when we and this really kind of applies to both, but you know, we should really limit these types of ba- you know background checks or you know drug testing to jobs that require it right you know is there something related to that job that tells us you know we should be you know testing for for drugs right like maybe it's a it's a driver or someone who's you know going to be operating certain machinery that you know if they're under the influence that you know it could cause all sorts of harm to individuals and you know expensive machinery right um so you know with respect to drug testing I mean, we can start with the general premise that employers can typically require applicants to pass a pre-employment drug test um, and have the ability to make uh, you know, an employment offer contingent on the results of that drug test. Now, that said, as you, you stated earlier, right, you, you've, got to, you've got to look into uh, your, your state and local laws on this because you know, certain states do have uh, restrictions on that or, um, you know, processes that must be followed or, you know, again, different time periods, these things can be done. Um, yeah. But again, right, not every job should be subject to a drug test, right? I mean, if we're just going to have some, you know, salesperson who's going to be making calls in the office, is that is that necessary, right? And especially considering, you know, um, you know, marijuana is, you know, um, legal in certain states, the federal level is different. But, you know, again, based on that, might we then be, you know, losing out on certain, you know, good candidates because, you know, they use marijuana. You know, so again, I, I think we want to consider really what positions you, you would need to use those uh, tests for and likely limit it. And I, I kind of go back to I, I botched my uh, my 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 example, but I almost feel like there's this sea change going on here. It's not just that okay, uh, obviously the way the world 
views marijuana has changed in my lifetime by a whole bunch, especially in the last decade. Um, but I think I do think the supply demand of labor is a big thing, right? When there was when there was more job seekers than jobs, that's what I meant originally. Um, uh, employers could scrutinize and say, "Hey, I'm gonna only people with college degrees who have never touched an illicit substance and just." As a filtering exercise, I think they did it, regardless of legality. Well, today, I mean, you know, it, you know, 3.7% unemployment, the January jobs number. Mm-hmm. Um, this is now two years under 4%. This, that has, we haven't had two years under 4% since the Nixon administration. I mean, this, this is a new world we're in. This, this war for talent, this labor shortage is not going away. This, this, this is here. Um, and so I, I, I see, I'm seeing lots of articles recently that, you know, a lot of traditional white collar jobs no longer requiring the college degrees. Right. And so um, I think people starting to wake up to realize, Hey, I just need people who can do the job. Right. Um, yeah. And look, that's what it comes down to. Right. You know, sometimes employers are so focused on, you know, what are the requirements for this? You know, what are the prerequisites instead of, Look, let's just focus. What are the essential functions of this? And yeah. let's find people who can perform those essential functions. Right. And I don't care if they're, you know, a high school graduate or college graduate or, you know, have an additional degree or certification. We want people who can do the job. And, and right. Right, that's what it's really about. Why limit ourselves uh, in those job advertisements to, you know, certain types of individuals, um, you know, when, when, you know, casting a wider net potentially you know get those people who can do the job maybe just a piece of guidance around actually making the offer itself where, where do you see employers get themselves in trouble in the actual giving the offer yeah so I, I think number one documentation right the, the job offer even if you communicate it to someone over the phone which you know often happens there should be a written offer right? And that offer letter should do a couple of things, right? It should always state this is at will employment, right? Most, you know, most states are at will employment. We want to confirm that, you know, there's not an agreement to employ and, them. And as opposed to what? As opposed to, uh, you know, employment, uh, you know, for a certain period, right? So if you don't no. say, if, if your offer letter says your salary will be, you know, 50, you know, 60,000 per year. And it doesn't say anything about at will. That employee might have a good argument that says, well, they express the offer as a yearly salary. So they must be offering me this job for one year. Yeah. Right. And if there's nothing suggesting otherwise, right now you get into a you know confused situation where the employer is going to have to explain, no, no, that's not what we meant. No. And that's why it's much easier to, to you know, you can, you know, and that's why often when we, express the salary, right? When we say it's a you know, $60,000 salary, we, you know, we might say, you know, this salary is X number of dollars per week expressed yeah. for your convenience as 60,000 per year. But again, you know, we just want to include that at will employment so that, you know, I think that, I think that's the big one. I, that's, yeah. I think sometimes folks don't realize they could be actually sending an offer that looks and smells an awful lot like an employment contract. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just a couple other things there would be, you know, 
make sure that offer letter is clear, right? You know, this should include all the benefit, you know, the salary information, right? And the total compensation. Don't don't leave stuff out of there. Um, and it, and again, right? You know, uh, there should be conditions. You know, if there are conditions for acceptance, those should go in there, right? So if the employee is going to have to sign a confidentiality agreement, you know, a non-disclosure agreement or an arbitration agreement, you know, that should be stated in the offer letter that, you know, th this is offer, you know, this is your offer and that, you know, there will be an obligation to sign, you know, whatever agreement, right? We, we just, yeah. we don't have to provide that to them then, but if there are other conditions, we want to make sure those are set forth. Like if you're offering the job, subject to a criminal background check. We want to make sure that's set forth in the offer letter. Right. Um, so just you know, to be clear on, on all those points in an offer letter. Um, and, you know, again, when you hire someone, you know, this goes maybe uh, a little bit after that offer, but, you know, you're typically going to want them to receive the job description so that they're on the same page as to what their essential and non-essential functions are. And, you know, they, we want them to acknowledge that and same thing with the handbook, right? So those are you know, really important documents to get them right at the outset. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. I think you and I could go for another hour on this topic, but really important information and, and, and I'm thankful for you sharing it. So thank you. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. And thanks to everyone else for joining. Uh, if you enjoyed today's podcast, if you learned something new, uh, if it helped you learn something to help grow your business, please like, comment, and share with a friend. Uh, we, we want to get this information out to as many small business owners and mid-sized companies and uh, managers as we possibly can. So thank you. Thanks again, Brian. And to everybody else, invite you to hop online, check out our SMB, our small business HR benchmark report. The data are in. It's really, really clear. If you have a good, the, the fastest growing companies in America have a good onboarding process. And those companies who are shrinking, they, they don't. So the, the path seems clear enough. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk to everybody else next week. That's it for this episode of Mission to Grow. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and more episodes, visit us at missiontogrow.com. If you found this content valuable, I invite you to share it with a friend and subscribe to the show. If you really want to help, I'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Mission to Grow is sponsored by Assure. Assure helps more than 100,000 businesses get access to capital, stay compliant, and develop the talent they need to grow. To learn more about how Assure can help your business grow, visit assuresoftware.com. Until next time.